Hebrews chapter 13. Let's back up to verse number 12 and read down through verse number 16. The Bible says, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. There are these little miniature commands that continue all the way through the end of the chapter. And from these little miniature commands, if we learn exactly what it is that a Christian is supposed to do and how a Christian is supposed to live. And so we're going to be in uh, from 13 down through the end of the chapter over the next two or three weeks. And the title of the, body, the Bible study tonight and for the remainder of the book will be this, The Behavior of a Model Christian. The Behavior of a Model Christian. If uh, someone were to come to you and say, Pastor, where in the Bible does it say this is exactly how a Christian ought to behave? I think this is a good place to go. And so we'll be uh, looking at four points this evening and four points next week. And we'll see how far we get. The goal will be to get through four points this evening uh, and let the Lord kind of guide us and lead us as we go along. Uh, but um, it would be a good time to check our, our own heart and our own spirit and see if we're living by these principles. Let's pray together. Lord, would you guide the uh, Bible study tonight? Lord, would you guide me as I speak? Uh, Lord, help me to uh, say things that are accurate, and careful, and Lord, uh, caring. And, Lord, um, where I need to say things that are tough, help me to be wise in how they're said. But, Lord, help the people here tonight to also take in and, Lord, be challenged by your word. Lord, my prayer is that every one of us tonight will leave here with something we can tweak, that we can do better to lift up the cause of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for giving us salvation. Thank you for calling us to be your disciples. Help us to walk worthy of that calling. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. How is it that a Christian is supposed to behave? How is it that a Christian is supposed to walk? Um, What does that look like? I believe that when a country has a lot of success the way America has for so many years, we end up with a version of Christianity that's a little bit distorted. A little bit distorted. Uh, In some cases, a lot of bit distorted. Many, many, many churches across America today are more like country clubs than they are gospel stations where we are given the gospel, where we grow by the gospel, and then we go forth and we give the gospel. And many Christians um, are very good at putting into um, the, the calendar a, a church service um, that they attend 
And they may take a few things from that church service and apply it to their life and be a little bit better for it, but they're just not sold on a heartfelt, true, radical Christianity. And I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but I don't want to get to heaven one day and have God look me in the eye and say, you know, if I'm being honest with you, Richard, you were just casual about your faith. I, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. I want him to look at me and say, boy, you were far from perfect, and you sure blew it your share of times along the way. But as a whole, you gave it a really strong effort. You really worked hard at it. And so when we come across passages like this in Hebrews 13 that lay out for us what it is that's expected of us, that sure is a help. I know as a teenage boy, uh, sometimes my parents would leave me at home by myself. And when they left me at home by myself, it wasn't like most kids today getting left home by themselves because I was the babysitter of six other human beings. <laughs> I was the oldest of seven. And um, my mom and dad would leave me at home to watch all, all of them. Um, at this point, I'm probably 14 or 15 years old, maybe 16 years old. And so I've got twin brothers that are three years old and running around in a diaper and getting in trouble and brothers and sisters that are fighting like cats and dogs. And I would uh, turn the living room into a wrestling match and let them slam each other on couches. And we'd have a good time as long as we didn't break anything. And um, my mom and dad would leave, and, and I always enjoyed it when they gave me a list of things that they wanted done when they came home. Because if I had a tangible list and I could execute that list, then I had some parents that were very happy with me. But what I didn't enjoy is when they said just generically, hey, when, when we get home, we want the house clean. Well, well, what does that mean, you want the house clean? Like white glove clean or, you know, as clean as it is right now or like you want a couple dishes in the sink washed or you want the entire kitchen scrubbed down. And so, you know, that, that term would just sort of leave it wide open and then when they'd get home because there wasn't a list, there weren't specifics, it was just left up to interpretation of what clean was. And I know that I appreciated a mom and a dad who would give me particulars and specifics of what they wanted. Um, one day when I stand before God, I believe he's going to pull out the truths of the Bible and my life is going to be measured against how I did with those particulars. And I'm glad that the Bible gives us particulars. And in a sense, these are measuring sticks. And uh, I think it's good occasionally to measure ourselves up against the standard of of righteous living. Um, I take my kids with me to the store. We were in Home Depot the other day, and uh, right there at Home Depot uh, at the checkout counter, they have, they have a ruler that I think runs 12 to 15 feet in the air for measuring wood. And my children love to stand up there and see if they've grown any since, you know, the last time we were at Home Depot. And um, they'll stand on their tiptoes or April will wear taller shoes to make herself look taller. And then there's an argument on the way out the door. No, you didn't grow any. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. 
And, um, uh, you know, it's good sometimes to put ourselves against that measuring stick of the Bible and just ask this question, how am I doing in this area? How am I doing in this area? And so there's two groups of people that will listen into a message like this. There are those who will hear the truth uh, and casually let it go in one ear and out the other, and they'll make no changes to their life. And then there's others who really are concerned with being a godly Christian. And they'll hear um, a message like this, one. They'll, they'll go through a Bible study like this one, and they'll see where they fall short, and they'll desire to grow, and they'll work to make those changes. I would encourage you to be in that second group. Well, let's look at uh, Hebrews 13. We're going to begin in verse 13, uh, and verse by verse just work through this, down through verse 16 tonight. Uh, the goal will be to get through verse number 16. And I want to give you four thoughts this evening on the behavior of a model Christian. Number one, notice the Christian's suffering. The Christian's suffering. Look at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 13. The Bible says, Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. Whose reproach is verse 13 talking about? It's talking about our Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, we want to keep this passage in historical context of the author and who he wrote it to. He wrote this passage to Jews as they were being tempted to leave Christianity and go back into the the ritualism of Judaism. In fact, we looked at that last week uh, where we saw that uh, he said, uh, the author said, in fact, look back up with me Let's see, at verse number 9, it says, Be not carried away with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, not with uh, animal sacrifices, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. And the whole book of Hebrews, as we've gone through it, we've seen that the author is just trying to get these Jews' attention to say, listen, you love all of the aspects of the Judaism religion from the temple to the tabernacle to all of the ceremonialism, the ritualism, uh, the smells, the acts, uh, the habits, uh, the yearly feasts, the priests, the garment of the priests. You love it all. You, you, you're in love uh, with it. Uh, but listen, all of those things were just an arrow to Christ. And now that we have Christ... All those things are to rest in peace. We are to move on. And we've talked about it over and over and over again, how difficult that was uh, for them. And so here in verse 13, with that in mind, back in verse 13, uh, they're tempted to go back in the tabernacle, or rather back in the temple, and they're tempted to go back to animal sacrifice in Jerusalem in the temple. And uh, the, the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, the altar that you need to be concerned with is not the one in the temple. It's the cross on the outside of town. Just as they took the carcasses of the animals after they had been sacrificed in the tabernacle or temple, just as they took those carcasses to the outskirts of the camp and burnt them there, he said that's where Jesus was sacrificed, on the outskirts of Jerusalem on a hill called Golgotha, on Mount Calvary. That's where Jesus died. And you don't need to be concerned with the temple anymore. The veil was rent in two. 
Jesus is, uh, the altar is on the outskirts of town. That is the altar. And then verse 13, so that, that all uh, covers what we talked about last week. Verse 13 says, tells us what we're to do with that information. Look there again. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him, unto Jesus, without the camp, bearing his reproach. Um, suffering, suffering. Turn with me, if you would, over to Luke chapter 14 and verse number 27. Luke 14 in verse number 27. The Bible says, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There's a cross that we have to bear. There's a cross that we have to bear. Now, I've heard people say, Oh, I'm bearing this cross, and it sure is heavy, and it sure is difficult. And I just want to say here, uh, understand that a cross, that a burden or a problem is not a cross unless uh, that burden or problem can be used to help better someone else's life. Jesus bore the cross on his back. He was nailed to it. And because of his death, I am free. And so if you're going through a trouble uh, some time in your life, but that's not being used in any way to benefit someone else, that suffering isn't being used to benefit someone else, then my friend, you're not bearing your cross. You're just going through a challenging time in your life. Why do Christians have to bear crosses. Can I tell you why? Because what's on the outside of camp, the cross, with the culture at large, is not popular. To follow, I mean to really truly follow Christ, in the culture at large, is not a popular thing to do. Turn over to Titus chapter 2 and verse number 14. Titus, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy 2 Timothy, Titus, uh, Titus chapter 2, and look at verse number 14. Those who turn to Christ, the Bible tells us what is supposed to happen here. It says, who gave himself for us, speaking of Jesus, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. Zealous of good works. One more verse. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 9. 1 Peter, this would be past Hebrews. So we were in Hebrews, if you're holding your place there. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2 and look at verse number 9. Peter says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, there's that phrase again, that ye should show forth the praise of him who hath called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. What, what are we gathering from this phrase, peculiar people? Here's what I gather from it. God does not want Christians to be socially awkward <laughs> or to be weird. That's not what that means. But what it does mean is that if you're going to follow Christ, you're going to go against the culture. People are going to scratch their head at your behavior. You go to church three times a week, 
and your neighbors are going to think you're weird. You give money to the church and people are going to think you've lost your mind. You pass out gospel tracts and people think, well, this guy's got boldness that doesn't make any sense. Peculiar. Peculiar. Why? Because we're not focused on traditional religion inside the temple. We're focused on following the rejected Christ who was burned outside the camp. That's going to lead to some suffering. It's going to lead to some suffering. Sometimes God brings suffering directly for our betterment. Sometimes suffering comes in our life and we excuse it away as all sorts of things and it's God directly sending suffering into our lives. I'm not going to get into particulars or specifics with that because it's not me to decide when God is directly sending suffering and when it is the sin curse of the earth and uh, when it is God allowing Satan to do something in our lives and it would be more indirect. But I will say that we study the scriptures and we understand that God does allow suffering into the life of a Christian and sometimes he is directly responsible for sending the suffering into the life of a Christian. And I would say to you, uh, that doesn't seem to fit our narrative of how a good parent behaves. I don't intentionally pin my children to the ground and pinch the back of their arm and cause them to scream and cry. That's not, in my opinion, how a good father behaves, right? I don't have my son grab hold of a fence post while I take a bat and break his arm in half. That's not the behavior of an acceptable behavior of a father, right? Why does God do that then? Why does he allow us to suffer? Well, more on that in a minute. Sometimes God isn't directly responsible for our suffering, but he signs off on it and allows others to hurt us for our betterment. Have you ever had someone just stab you in the back? You ever had someone take advantage of you, mistreat you? You ever suffered? Maybe you've had a, a fight with a, a, a parent or a spouse or a best friend, a big falling out, and uh, you just really felt like you were getting the raw end of the deal, the short end of the stick. You weren't being treated right. And you suffer. You ever laid in bed at night your heart racing, your mind racing, and you just can't go to sleep? Because you feel like, I can't believe, after all I've done for such and such, that he or she would treat me in such a way. And then, if you're like me, the next thought that comes into your mind is, God, why would you allow this to happen? Why wouldn't you step in and stop it? I don't want to pretend that I know what real suffering is. Because there's always someone out there that is suffering greater than I am. No matter how bad it is. I remember at one point in my life when I was really, really low. I was really low. And I was living in pity party pit, if you will. Went into the bathroom of the little 
dwelling that we, uh, where we were. And I stared in the mirror, and I closed the bathroom door. I stared in the mirror, and I looked myself in the eye. You ever talk to yourself? Anybody here ever talk to themselves? How many of you, it no longer embarrasses you when other people catch you talking to yourself? You're just way past that, okay? So, and as they say, it's okay to talk to yourself. Just don't respond back to yourself. That's a problem, okay? Some of you never talk to yourself, and good for you. You have greater self-discipline than I. But I looked myself in the eye, and I said, suck it up. I said, as bad as you have it, there are Christians in the Middle East being kidnapped or killed for their faith. It's not really all that bad. And I had to give myself pep talks like that regularly. But in that moment, when you're going through a hurt, the hurt is real. You're suffering. A wise man once observed, he said, most of the Psalms were written in difficulty. Most of the epistles were written in prisons. Most of the greatest thoughts of the greatest thinkers of all times had to pass through the fire. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress from jail. Florence Nightingale, too ill to move from her bed, reorganized the hospitals of England. Semi-paralyzed and under the constant menace of apoplexy, Pasteur was tireless in his attack on disease. During the greater part of his life, American historian Francis Parkman suffered so acutely that he could not work for more than five minutes at a time. His eyesight was so wretched that he could uh, scrawl only a few gigantic words on a manuscript, yet he contrived to write 20 magnificent volumes of history. Sometimes it seems uh, that, uh, that when God is about to make uh, uh, what, rather, sometimes it seems that when God is about to make preeminent use of a man, he puts him through the fire. He puts him through the fire. I can look back over my life and I can tell you that the times I grew the most and the times that I uh, became a far better Christian for the Lord were the times where I was being hurt the most. Suffering is an important part of the Christian life. And I'm afraid that many American Christians are afraid, cower away from, steer clear of suffering. When suffering is just supposed to be part of our identity. And here in verse 13, the Bible tells us that the model model Christian, the behavior of a model Christian is to bear reproach. To bear reproach. Look back at verse 13. Let us, uh, chapter 13, verse 13 of Hebrews. Let us go forth therefore unto him, unto Jesus, without the camp. You know what that means to be without the camp? That means we're not in a place of popularity. Bearing, it says there, verse 13, it says, bearing his reproach. We take up the cause of Christ and we embrace the glory of, Right, We embrace the power of his resurrection, but we also embrace the fellowship of his suffering. Number one, the Christian's suffering. Number two, notice, the Christian's seeking. The Christian's seeking, seeking of heaven. Look at verse number 14. It says there, For here 
have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. We seek one to come. What is that talking about? We have no continuing city. I see folks who are very, very loyal to a region of the country. And I'm not going to throw stones at those people because I've not had the advantage of growing up in the same place my whole life. All right, I moved around. I was a what I'll call a ministry brat. My, my dad in the ministry, and not a military brat, but a ministry brat. Uh, but my wife grew up in the same house her entire childhood, and she has an affinity for her hometown. How many of you here grew up in the same region, uh, same general area, and um, you may there are things about uh, that region you may not like, but if you were to get away long enough, there's just a heartstring attachment to want to go back. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, some of you are like, nope, I'll leave Connecticut in a heartbeat and not miss it. Um, you know what, though? People who leave Connecticut do end up missing it. They don't miss the taxes. <laughs> but, uh, but they miss uh, the familiarity of the area. And um, we're not, and, and listen, and that's fine. I, I get all that, and there's nothing wrong with having a desire back to where you grew up. But in comparison to how we feel toward heaven, we're not to have a loyalty to a city on earth. We're to have a longing in our heart to go to heaven, be with Jesus. Um, turn over to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 8, just a couple chapters from where we are. Hebrews chapter 11. Verse number 8, the Bible says, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place, which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. By By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same province. Look at verse 10, For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham was not looking for an earthly city. Abraham had his sights set on a heavenly city. Turn over to Colossians chapter number 1 and verse number 5. From Hebrews, it's just a couple of books back to the left there, before Timothy, before Thessalonians, right before Thessalonians, you get to the book of Colossians. Colossians Chapter number 1 and verse number 5. The Bible says here, For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the, of the truth of the gospel. The Christian's hope is not some city here on earth. It's not... Uh, some location here on earth, our hope, our desire, our heartthrob, our heartbeat, our, our push, our passion ought to be the kingdom of heaven and everything about it. Look at chapter 3 of Colossians. Chapter 3 and verse number 2. That thought of our hope being heaven, it says, Set your affection on things above, not on things above. On the earth. Our affection is to be on things above. 
I, I, can, I can tell when I talk to someone where their affection lies. And you, you get into a conversation with someone, and within 10 minutes, if you let them lead the conversation, they're going to take you to what they're most passionate about. What are you passionate about? Where is your affection? When was the last time that you felt your emotions stirred when you thought about heaven and the prospect of going there and you thought about earth and all of those who are not going there and your desire to try to get people there? The Christian's affection ought to be uh, on that city, that seeking of heaven. And boy, our life is but a vapor, James tells us, that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Turn over to Acts chapter number 1 and verse number 9. I love, love, love this story. Acts chapter 1 and verse number 9. Uh, Luke and Acts were both written by the same person, uh, and that would be Luke. And he was writing to Theophilus, uh, who was a man inquiring about what had happened. But he wrote under the inspiration of Scripture. And Acts is just a continuation of, of, of Luke, the book of Luke. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse number 7 and 8 is Jesus giving us the Great Commission right before he ascended up to heaven. Look at verse number 9. And when he, Jesus, had spoken these things, uh, which they beheld, he, Jesus, was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Boy, I wish I could have uh, seen this. Uh, Here the disciples are, gathered with Jesus there at the mount. And Jesus gives his final commission. And watch this, he starts floating up off the ground... Toward the sky. Can you imagine if I were to just start levitating off the ground and then I were to just get to the ceiling and then, boop, disappear? And then you're to run outside and see me floating up toward the sky? Boy, you'd stand there and do this right here. Wow. How did he do that? Well, it would really be something if I did it because I'm just a human being. It was a little less spectacular for him to do it because he was God, and they knew that. I mean, good night, the guy had risen from the dead, right? Floating up in the sky is no big deal when you can stand up out of the grave and live, right? But nonetheless, it was quite a spectacle. And there they are. I mean, I don't know if it was 10 minutes later, 20 minutes later, an hour later. They're still standing there going... And they stood there so long... That God had to send an angel from heaven to come down and say, Hey, quit staring up into heaven and get to work. Because one day he is coming back. He's going to come back in those clouds and he's going to want to know what you did for him. Now, uh, a lot of Christians, you ask them what they're doing and they say, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for Jesus to come back. I'm waiting for Jesus to come back. You know, we can wait and be lazy or we can wait and work. We need to wait, and we need to work while we wait. You've heard the song, Whistle While You Work? Well, work while you watch. Amen? Work while you, you wait. The, the song uh, in our hymnal, uh, a famous song, in fact, a lot of youth groups sing this song as it's an upbeat, happy song. 
but it was taken from a poem that goes like this. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. O Lord, you know I have no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, then Lord, what will I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Christian, don't get so busy accumulating riches and wealth uh, and uh, nice things and being so uh, earthly-minded and money-minded and materialistically-minded that you lose the perspective that, hey, we're just a passing through. We're sojourners on our way to heaven. And uh, listen, I'm all for being an American and being proud to be an American and fighting for our country and fighting for our rights and standing up for all that. But make sure that your love for the eternal kingdom is so much more strong that it eclipses your love uh, for any national country. The Christians seeking of heaven. Are your sights set on things above or are they set on things of the earth? If you and I were to go on a vacation, my family and your family were to go on a vacation, and let's say that you had millions of dollars in the bank, and we were to go stay at a, at a, um, a, a Hampton Inn, and that was well below your standard, but that was at my standard, because that's what I can afford. And so I'm staying in a Hampton Inn room, and you're staying in a Hampton Inn room, but you're used to staying in the nicest of hotels, and it's just not up to snuff for what you want. And we're only going to be in that hotel for three or four days, maybe a week, and all of a sudden I turn around on day two, and boy, uh, you have new carpet going into that hotel room and they're swapping out a mattress for a newer mattress and they're taking down the artwork and putting up a very expensive painting and uh, they're uh, uh, you know they're they're changing out the window coverings and they're hanging a an 80 inch tv uh, flat screen tv on the wall and i come and knock on your door and and you're there and you're giving directions and telling people where to go what to do and i say Man, what's going on here? And he said, well, I got permission from the manager to upgrade this room because it's just not meeting my standard. And I look at you and say, we're only going to be here a week, man. You're wasting your money. Hey, what did the, um, what did the songwriter say? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining is the sun, we'll know less days of seeing God's grace than when we first begun. Hey, look, uh, in the grand scheme of eternity... Our life on earth is but a blip on the radar. Let's not get too comfortable here and neglect the other side. The Christian's seeking of heaven. Number three, notice the Christian's sacrifice of praise. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13 again and look with me at verse number 5. Hebrews chapter 13. I'm sorry, not verse number 5, verse number 15. Verse number 15. It says, By him, therefore, let us offer... The sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Now, I have to just tell you that this verse sounds really poetic. But when you start to think about the sacrifice of praise, you begin to scratch your head and say, what in the world does that mean? And then it got me thinking. Is that verse, is that phraseology, the sacrifice of praise, is that a one-off in Scripture? And the answer is, oh, no, it is not. 
Boy, the Jews, when they heard that there, that was a trigger to Old Testament sacrifices. Turn to Leviticus chapter number 7. Leviticus chapter number 7 and verse number 12. I, I want to, uh, if, if, if this is what you get tonight from the Bible study, uh, is this neat little nugget, this neat little tidbit, I think you'll leave here tonight feeling like you got a whole lot out of the Bible. Leviticus chapter 7, and look at verse number 12. Now, before we read the, the verses there, uh, Leviticus is written to tell the Israelites how to worship God. The book of Leviticus is the worship manual for the Levites, who were the worship leaders of the country of Israel. Now, it is outside of our culture, and it's outside of our customs, and it's outside of our style, uh, but there's a whole lot here that if we understand what we're reading, we can draw from. Last week, we put the pictures up on the screen of the uh, tabernacle there, and we showed that in the courtyard of the tabernacle, there was a a brazen altar, and uh, they would offer five different types of of sacrifices on that altar. And let's see if I can get these right off the top of my head. The two that were mandatory were the sin offering and the trespass offering. The trespass offering was for sins that you would commit that you didn't even know you had committed them. Almost you sinned accidentally or it was brought to your attention that you had done wrong. That was the trespass offering. The sin offering was specifically for those who had stolen something. And any time you had stolen anything, uh, whether that was by accident or on purpose, little or big, you uh, had the sin offering. Those two were required. The other three offerings uh, were voluntary offerings, but still were a regular part of the worship in Israel. And that was the meat or meal offering. Um, that would be, let's see, the burnt offering, which was the oldest and most um, uh, ancient of the offerings. And then the one we'll look at right here in Leviticus uh, chapter number 7, and that is the peace offering, the peace offering. Now, it's very interesting to note that all five of these offerings played a part in feeding the Levites. The meat that cooked up there on that altar was the food that fed the Levitical tribe. It was how they got their food. It was how the men of God and the families of the men of God were taken care of. Now, if you brought the offering, you were not allowed to eat of that offering unless it was the peace offering. Look at Leviticus chapter 7 and verse number 12. Look here. The Bible says, If he offer it, speaking of the peace offering, verse 11 tells us this is the sacrifice of the peace offerings. Verse 12, if he offer it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with, uh, let's see here, with, he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving unleavened, notice that word unleavened, unleavened cakes mingled with oil and unleavened wafers anointed with oil and cakes mingled with oil of fine flour fried. Verse 13, beside the cakes, he shall offer for his offering leavened bread. So we saw unleavened in verse 12, leavened in verse 13, leavened bread with the sacrifice of thanksgiving. There's that sacrifice, the sacrifice of thanksgiving of his peace offering. When Hebrews 13 verse 15 talks about the sacrifice of praise, it is talking about the peace offering, the peace offering. Someone in here is snoring. All right. Someone want to bump him? Amen. Brother Reggie, you want to walk back and just give him a... <laughs> Amen. Everybody up back up here. All right. I had to address it so no one else would be distracted. All right. 
Some people work really hard all day and they come in here to church and they, um, they're tired. And we're just glad they show up. Um, we're not going to make anyone feel bad about it. But we want to address it uh, so it wouldn't be a distraction. The sacrifice of praise. Now watch this. They would lay out two offerings side by side. One of them had, uh, uh, one of them had yeast or was leaven, and the other one had no yeast, and it was unleavened. Why? Because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice that had no sin. So that unleavened bread represented Christ, and the leavened bread represented the person bringing the offering who was sinful. And they would stand there, and they would offer this, and they would sing praise to God, they would worship God, and then the priest would eat that which was unleavened, and then the offerer would eat the the portion that was leavened there. And they had an offering that was a sacrifice of praise. This was the one time they got to gather around the brazen altar, and they got to eat what was offered on that altar. It was a sacrifice of praise. Now watch this. To praise God, it cost them something. It cost them something. They had to dig into their pocket and buy the materials. And they had to give up their time. And they had to go there. And they had to gather around. And they had to put that on there. And they had to pay in order to show God praise. Christians, let's not make our worship to God, our praise to God, cheap. Let's not cheapen it, all right? That phrase, sacrifice of praise, is found one, two, three, four other times in the Old Testament. Turn over to Psalm 107 in verse number 22. Psalm 107 in verse number 22. And this whole psalm is about praising God. Verse 1, which... I'll just read here while you're finding that. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. This is a, the entire 43 verses of this psalm uh, is a psalm about how important it is, us, it is for us to praise God. Look at verse 22. And let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his work with rejoicing. There it is. Our thanksgiving ought to be... A sacrifice. All right, hold that thought. I'm going to build on that in a moment. Turn over to Psalm 116, verse 17. 116, verse 17. It should just be a page or two or three to the right there. Psalm 116, verse number 17. It says there, uh, here the psalmist says, I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. Notice that this thanksgiving is to be a sacrifice. It is to cost something. All right, two more. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse number 26. To the right there, Jeremiah 17. Isaiah, Jeremiah, it's to the right of the book of Psalms before you get to the minor prophets of the littler books. Jeremiah chapter 17. If you get to Ezekiel, you've gone too far. No, you haven't. I'm getting in a lot of order. It's somewhere after the book of Psalms. Amen. Jeremiah 17, verse number 26. Sometimes my direction giving just gets people more lost. Um, Verse 26 says, And they shall come from the cities of Judah, and from the places about Jerusalem, and from the land of Benjamin, and from the plain, and from the mountains, and from the south, 
bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices and meat offerings and incense and bringing sacrifices of praise, sacrifices of praise unto the house of the Lord. That again is a reference to the peace offering. All right, one more. Chapter 33 and verse number 11. And uh, those who grew up in church or been around the Bible a long time, I believe there's a little chorus that goes along with Jeremiah 33, verse 11. I grew up hearing, and um, it's a neat little neat little song. Maybe we'll sing it sometime here in church. But So this was the one of the four verses I was the most familiar with. Look here. The voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of them that shall say, Praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his mercy endureth forever, and of them that shall bring the sacrifice of praise. There's the phrase, sacrifice of praise, into the house of the Lord. For I will cause to return the captivity of the land, as at the first saith the Lord. What needed to happen for these Israelites to get out of captivity? They needed to bring the sacrifice of praise. Now, uh, here's what I want to add uh, this evening here, is that to be grateful at times is difficult. You know how I know that being grateful at times is difficult? Because our default is not to give thanks. Our default is to complain. We complain about everything. We complain when something's good but not a little bit better. Right? I I like to watch people complain about the way their food is cooked in an upscale restaurant. Don't you realize you're sitting... In one of the nicest restaurants in the world. And you're going to complain because there's just a little bit too much pink. Or not quite enough pink in your steak. I mean, really. You know how many people in this world would love to get that plate right in front of them and, and eat that? You know, they eat a bowl of rice every day. Or two bowls of rice every day. And here you are complaining because your steak is just cooked a little too much. Or not enough. And uh, we complain about everything. It doesn't matter how good someone has it. They just find a way to complain. You know, it's our sin nature to do that. And uh, look, everyone I've ever known on some level struggles with complaining. I'm sure there's that person out there that's got it all figured out. And, you know, they've just beat it. And they never complain ever about anything. But, boy, everyone I've met seems on some level to complain about that. Now, watch this. I found this quote today, and I, I thought this quote was excellent. Gratitude is an offering precious in the sight of God. And it is one that the poorest of us can make and not be poorer, but richer for having made it. Isn't that good? I'm going to read that again. Well, that quote's so good it deserves to be read twice. Gratitude is an offering precious in the sight of God. And it is one that the poorest of us can make and be not poorer, but richer for having made it. One person, or actually I'll get to who it was in a moment, but a famous person once said this. He said, we have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. See if you can figure out who this is. Everyone in here knows the name. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power uh, as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multitude and enriched and strengthened us. 
and we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray uh, to the God that made us, it behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. That was Abraham Lincoln in a proclamation of prayer. How much more true is that today? Christians, it's not always easy to give thanks. It's not always easy to praise God. Sometimes it's a sacrifice. Oh, but what an important sacrifice. You know, we began talking about suffering. Suffering. Can you praise God while you're suffering? When you can get into doing that, you've you've graduated to a good place in your Christian life. The model model behavior of a Christian. Let's look at, uh, well, we'll save the fourth one for next week. I'll, I'll give you the blank, then we'll talk about it next week. The Christian's service to others. The Christian's service to others. We'll, we'll get into all that next week. I hope the Bible study tonight has challenged you, has been that measuring stick that has helped you. All right?